All right, uh, the scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are in a series in which we're uh, talking about why Sunday morning matters, why it matters that we are gathered here together for worship on the Lord's Day each and every week. And I want to reiterate something or reinforce something maybe about this sermon series. I want to make it abundantly clear that this is not an either or series. This is an if then series. Now, what do I mean by that? I am not saying through this series that either you are worshiping God because you're here or you're not, okay? I am not saying that either God is glorified by you because you're here or he's not glorified by you at all. I am not saying that. Looking at our text for this week, I am not saying that God is only present with you when you're here or he's not. This is not an either-or series. This is an if-then series. If it is true that we are each individually able to worship God, no matter where we are, then how much more is it true that we are able to worship God when we are gathered together on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day for worship? If it is true that we can glorify God, then how much, when we're by ourselves or in private, then how much more are we able to glorify God when we are gathered together? That was our text from last week from Psalm 87. God loves the courts of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. It was pointing to the fact that God loves to receive the praises of his people when they're gathered. He does not despise the praises that arise from the house of Jacob. He does not, in other words, he does not in any way look down on our private worship. But God is glorified when we are gathered together in a more profound way than when we are individually by ourselves. You know, the example that we used at the end of the sermon last week was that of uh, the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, right? If the the individual oboist or the individual alto, as they are doing their different, you know, moments of individual rehearsal, if you imagine all the instrumentalists and all the vocalists in the choir and in the symphony, glorifying God as they reflect, you know, imagining they're all believers, glorifying God as they, as they reflect on the beauty of the work that they are doing and using that as a, a vehicle to give glory and praise to God, then how much more when the members of the chorus and the members of the symphony are gathered together before a room full of people offering praise to God. If then, not either or. Now, I'm not saying this, not emphasizing the the significance of corporate worship because of, you know, 
herd mentality or crowd psychology or because Grace Church is somehow, you know, better than any other Bible-believing, Christ-proclaiming church. I'm, I'm saying this because this is what the Word of God tells us. And just as last week, I hope I was able to, to demonstrate from you, from God's Word, that God is more glorified when we are gathered together to praise His name then what I hope to demonstrate this morning is that God is more fully present with his people when we are gathered together in his name. And so three things we're going to see this morning. First, the heart of God to dwell with his people. Second, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And then third, the presence of God among his people. So first, the heart of God to dwell with his people. Second, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And then third, the presence of God among his people. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. Lord, I do pray that you would work powerfully through your word, through the sacrament as it's offered in just a bit, uh, by the power of your spirit to encourage us, to build us up. Lord, to give us a greater taste of your grace because you are here with us even now. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the heart of God to dwell with his people. Now, I titled the sermon, Better Than Being Alone on a Mountain. And I know some of you are thinking, eh, I don't know. Being alone on the side of a mountain is pretty sweet. It's quiet, except for the birds. It's beautiful. It doesn't Psalm 19.1 say, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork? Of course, I can have a real sense of God's presence with me in creation, right? His glory. And the answer is absolutely yes. The last thing I want to do is minimize the significance of being out in creation, worshiping God. If anything, I want to emphasize it. I want to maximize it. I want to get us all outside. We live in a beautiful part of God's world. And we have an opportunity because the heavens do declare the glory of God. And the sky above does declare his handiwork. And because the the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the, the flowers of the field all bear testimony to God's creativity and power. And the, star, the, star, the stars in the sky uh, bear witness to his majesty for all these reasons and more. Yes, we can know something of the presence of God in nature. And so we ought to get out for a walk, <laughs> maybe more often than what we do, because the heavens declare his glory, and we can redound to him or rebound to him when worship out in his creation. However, I want us to spend the first part of the sermon just really marveling, I think is the right and appropriate word, at the heart of God, at God's desire to dwell with his people. His desire. God wants to be with his people. In uh, Leviticus, well, we'll sorry, yeah, Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, 11 to 13, God says this. I will make my dwelling, but the word dwelling there is the word tabernacle. 
I will make my dwelling among you. He's talking to his people. And my soul shall not abhor you. Now, woo, right? My soul shall not abhor you. But think about this for a second. We are a sinful people. We have fallen short, far short of the glory of God. We're created in his image. That image is defaced because of our sin. We are not those who by nature seek after God and desire to be with him. We are those who seek to flee from him and rebel against him. A holy God is saying, I will be with you and I will not abhor you. That's a good place to start. He goes on, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. That's Leviticus 26, 11 to 13. But listen to Exodus 29. Exodus 29, this is verse 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. He's talking about the tabernacle. It will be sanctified by my glory. Now let's stop and think about the presence of his glory for a minute. Last week we talked about the fact that, yes, the heavens do declare the glory of God, but in what way does creation reveal God's glory to us? And my contention is not in the most important way. We do see something of the the wonder and the majesty of God's creative power in creation. If a storm rolls in later today and we hear the thunder, if there's thunder, and see the lightning, if there's lightning, it is testifying to the power of God. And yet, nowhere is his glory as fully manifest than in his work of redemption. His work of creation, absolutely yes, but how much more in his work of redemption? The work that he has done in his son to rescue a people for himself. Yes, we see God's glory on the side of a mountain. We see more of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. My temple, my meeting place, will be sanctified by my glory. Exodus 29, 43. And then verses 45 to 46. I will dwell among them. So there's the idea of tabernacling again, if we can make that a verb or whatever that is. I will dwell among them. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Again, the revelation of his glory in such a way that we actually know him. Not just know about him in the way that we do in creation on the side of the mountain, but actually know him because he is dwelling with us. Ezekiel 37, 27, I love this passage. This is God speaking through Ezekiel to a people who are in exile because of their sin. And again, 37, 27, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now we hear that from Ezekiel and we, we rightly think of God's people Israel in exile because of their sin. But don't forget about what this passage for this morning is telling us about what it means to be, for us to be part of God's people. 
So let me read Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. Now let's just think about what's being said here. Prior to this in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has been talking about the fact that God, by his grace, through Christ, has reconciled people. Both God's people, God's people, the Jews from the Old Testament, and all those who would profess faith in Christ, Jewish converts to Christianity, but also the Gentiles. When, when Peter said in Acts chapter 2, the promises for you and for your children and for those who are far off, he was talking about us, not just the far off geographically from Jerusalem, the far off from God because of our sin. It's us. And what Paul's saying here is that we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are actually fellow citizens. Now, remember again, Psalm 87 last week. Remember those verses where it talked about the fact, referring to these distant nations, these Gentile peoples, these enemies of God, of whom it is now said they are from here. They are from Zion. Psalm 87 ends with, with, a, with us being told that God has registered them, us, We're no longer strangers and aliens. We are now citizens of God's kingdom. But Paul says more than just the fact that we're citizens of God's kingdom. He says that, in fact, we are part of God's household. Second half of verse 19. Fellow citizens with the saints, there's kingdom, and members of the household of God, family. Listen, these... Paul wrote this to a Gentile church in Ephesus, and it was circulated around that region, and it's preserved for us. Even though this idea feels very remote, it may feel like, well, haven't we always been the people of God? No, we are are blessed to be brought into the family of God, to be citizens of God the kingdom of God, and to be joined together with those who are being built up into the temple of God, a place where God's spirit dwells. These are, we are, his people, with whom his heart longs to dwell. Again, just meditate on that for a second. The very heart of God is to dwell in the midst of his people. Not because he needs us, but because he knows how much we need him. The very heart of God is to dwell with his people. Second, let's look at the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. Now again, that word, tabernacle that we saw throughout these verses that I just read, the word dwell with or tabernacle with. Of course, you remember John chapter 1, where we read that Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt, or more literally, tabernacled 
among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the manifestation of God's presence in the flesh in his time on earth. He is the meeting place with God. And yet Jesus did die, and he did rise, and he did ascend into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. So how is it then that he's able to keep these promises that he made? For instance, in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Or Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is that possible? If he's there, how can he be with us here? And he told his disciples in John 14 and John 16 that he would be with us by his Spirit. John 14, John 16, I will send the Comforter. I will send the Holy Spirit. When did we see that happening? Acts chapter 2, which I've referred to already in the baptism. The Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. That is God's promise to be with his people. And one day that promise will be fulfilled. It's hinted at, it's pointed to, not just hinted at, in verse 22 of our passage for this morning. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is pointing ultimately to the last day when the work of God is done. This is referring to the church universal, to all God's people everywhere throughout history, finally being joined together as a dwelling place for God. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 give us a, another picture of that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, this idea of Zion from last week being wherever God's people are gathered to worship him. God is coming now to the renewed heaven and earth that we might worship him. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, or literally tabernacle, of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. However, the Bible tells us that even though Christ was present with us, manifesting the presence of God in the flesh, he himself, the tabernacle of God, and even though that day is coming when that promise of God to be with his people forever will be fulfilled, yet even now scripture tells us that God is present with us by his spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16, talking to the church in Corinth, says, do you, and the you is plural, do you all not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you all? And then in 2 Corinthians 6.16, he makes it even more clear. We 
are the temple of the living God. Not we will be the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. Again, fulfillment language. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is present by his spirit with his people as we are gathered together. There is more going on here than meets the eye. What's God up to? Let's move third to the presence of God among his people. My contention again is not an either or, it's an if then. It is not a matter of either God is present with you because you're here or God is not present with you at all. God is present with his people always. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. That doesn't mean time of trouble only if it happens between 10.30 and 11.45 on Sunday morning. It is wherever and whenever God is an ever-present help to his people. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, ever. It is an if then, if it is true that he is present with you in private, if it is true, if it is true that he will never leave you nor forsake you, if it's true that he hears you when, he call, when you call on him, how much better then, or how much more is it true because he is with us now as we are gathered. Because his very heart is to dwell among us. Again, not because he needs us, but out of love because he knows how much we need him. If he is present with us now by the Spirit, building us up until that last day, then what enjoyment is offered to us when we are here? How does God, how do we experience God's presence with us? How is it that we know his presence with us when we're here for worship on Sunday morning? And it is not because the music team has been able to stir you up emotionally such that you just have this emotional experience. Now, God does care about our emotions. He does want our hearts stirred, and he does use music to the end that our hearts are stirred. And yet, God offers more of himself to us than that. It's, it's not because, you know, you basically heard a TED Talk. I've been able to somehow inspire you by giving a lecture that, that you know, inspires you to go live a, a better day tomorrow than you did yesterday. Mm-mm. God does want our minds to be challenged. He wants us to think differently about things, <laughs> to think more in line with the way and the purpose of his kingdom than and then in glorifying our own names or, or living for the things of this earth. God offers himself to us through what have been referred historically as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. You think ordinary, yes, ordinary. This isn't a uniquely, I'm going to quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism in a second, but don't think that this is just a Presbyterian thing. This is a Reformed Church thing. This is a Protestant Church thing. 
You can go to the Savoy Declaration from the 1700s and you can read the same thing concerning the Congregationalists. You can go to uh, the, the Baptist, uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith and you'll read the same thing, largely because they kind of had the Westminster Shorter Catechism in their hand as they were writing that. But listen to this question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 88, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Again, redemption over creation. Not that the creation doesn't manifest or display to us the glory of God, but the benefits of redemption through the ordinary means of grace to God's gathered people. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. How is God working when we're gathered together that we might experience more of his presence with us? It's through the word preached, it's through the prayers that are offered, and it's through the sacraments that are presented to us. None of these things just in a mechanical way. All of these things to be received by faith in Christ, but to those who look to him, hear the word, engage in the prayer, receive the sacraments, by faith in Christ experience more of God's presence with us in worship. This is how God presents himself to us. We don't believe that the, body becomes, or the bread becomes the body of Christ or that the, the wine or the juice becomes the blood of Christ. But we do have bread and we do have the cup. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're not just doing this to remember something Jesus did, but we are actually communing with Christ when we come to the table. This is, to use Paul's language, a participation in the body of Christ, something that we do together in a spiritual sense, feeding on Christ. Concerning the Word of God, again, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this is also found in the London Uh, Confession of Faith says this. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Now you know and I know it has nothing to do with the skill of the preacher. It has everything to do with the promise of God to attend to his word by his spirit so that those who receive the word preached are built up and draw closer to Christ. Now, in two weeks, when we come back to this series, we will look more at how it is that God actually builds us up together when we're gathered even more than he does when we're studying the word of God on our own. But just for now, I just want, I want to wrap up before I get into application to just challenge you to think about the fact that God desires to dwell with you. He wants to be among us, not because we 
he needs us, but because we need him. And he doesn't have this happen in a way that somehow, you know, elaborate, requires hard work on us, hoops to jump through. He just says, here's my word, here's my body, broken for you, received by faith, and be nourished by grace. How then do we apply? Well, I've mentioned before uh, the, the sermon, the Puritan sermon that inspired this, David Clarkson's uh, sermon. How would he suggest that we apply this? And, you know, last week I said the application was let it rip. All right? If you're going to worship, worship with your whole self. How do we apply now? He would say come prepared. Come prepared. If God is present with us by his spirit when we are gathered together, come prepared Come prepared to meet him. Come prepared by having a high view of what's happening here, a biblical view of what's happening here. Yes, you're coming in order to be with your brothers and sisters. Yes, you're coming to be stirred by beautiful worship. Yes, you're coming to have your intellect, I hope, challenged, and, but yet you're coming ultimately to meet with the living God. Only possible because Christ is our mediator. And we come into God's presence through him. Have a high view of what's happening here, and you'll be coming prepared. Come prepared with a humble view of your own soul. <laughs> you know, when, when Leviticus tells us that God will not abhor us when he chooses to dwell with us, recognize that he has every reason to except for the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that covers us. Come with a humble view of your own soul. Come with a hunger for the enjoyment of Christ in worship. Come hungry for Jesus, and Jesus will fill you. In other words, come having spent time in private worship. Come having spent time throughout the week in your word, in the word of God alone. Meditating or, or um, contemplating the glory of God in creation. Come having spent time in prayer. Come having spent time in growth groups. As a small community of people encouraging and nurturing one another in the Lord. Come prepared by having spent time in private worship in order to be ready for everything that God has for you in gathered worship. Let me end with this quote from uh, David Clarkson. The presence of God which enjoyed in private is but a stream. In public becomes a river. A river that makes glad the city of God. And then he changes metaphors. The presence of the Lord in public worship makes it a spiritual feast. And so it is expressed from Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. That's the feast that we anticipate one day after I pray we'll come to this feast before us at this table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather Lord, we thank you for this place. We know it's not the place that is holy. It's your presence with your people that sanctifies and sets it apart. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would work in us in such a way that we come here hungry for you, that we come here recognizing our own sin, and yet we come remembering and reflecting and anticipating and celebrating your grace 
and we come with a high view of what's happening here. We get to meet with the Holy God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.